I am glad you're back. You've stumbled across another artificially intelligent hour of thinking through autonomy. Today's episode explains the unfolding AI revolution in commercial aviation and highlights one of its key architects. Now, if you're suddenly focusing on a pilotless airplane flown by HAL 9000, stop there, just take a deep breath. That's not what today is about. We'll be discussing the real story that's behind the scenes of how airplanes and airports and airlines are changing through the use of AI. Finally, and perhaps to either the delight or the chagrin of today's guest, we're going to discuss how his career took him to the beaches of Cannes on the French Riviera, all in the name of AI. That's got to be a good story. Joining me today is Mark Roboff. Most recently, he was General Manager of Transformation for Aerospace at DXC Technology. And Mark is now working on a shh, top secret project that I'm going to try to get him to spill the beans on. I'm not a spy master, so I don't know if I'll be successful. Mark's an industry visionary, and I am not using that lightly, a consensus builder and a standards maven for using AI in commercial aviation. He has an expansive career at the epicenter of AI, including a gig with IBM's Watson. He's co-inventor on two patents covering natural language processing, and he's host of the new podcast, Cleared for Takeoff, which you can find on iTunes. Today's episode is being recorded on March 23rd, 2021. If you enjoy Thinking Through Autonomy, please like us and subscribe to our channel on YouTube or iTunes or SoundCloud or Spotify for that matter, wherever you are listening. Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. Mark, welcome to Thinking Through Autonomy and joining us today. Thank you, Ken. It is a delight um, and a pleasure to be here and an honor as well, uh, especially given you know the chats we've had in the past. Um, we don't need to be uh, recording to have fun and, and to just start riffing for hours, but I'll point out a couple of things um, in the intro just to get us going. So first, yes. uh, I'm, I don't really ever think about HAL 9000, but I'll say that for, for the standards work that, that I lead in that committee, and I'm sure we'll get into that, I will, I will probably say our unofficial mascot is Auto, the inflatable autopilot from the <laughs> airplane. I know that. Yeah. I, know, I, I know that <laughs> autopilot. Okay. <laughs> yeah, surely we're, we're serious. <laughs> <laughs> Sec- That's one of, of all, the cleaner lines in that whole movie, by the way. What, what pilot uh, can't uh, reference uh, that uh, movie, especially commercial airline pilot, can't reference that movie verbatim? Do you have um, clearance, Clarence? <laughs> yes. Victor, Victor? Yes. Okay. So the second thing is, um, so Cleared for Takeoff is actually going to be changing its name, and that's actually why we've had a, a little bit of a hiatus. Um, as we get some 
uh, additional support uh, and and whether that's you know, right now it's looking like some good marketing support from uh, our, our benefactors, SAE International, they, they did some research. It turns out that the FAA has a podcast called Cleared for Takeoff. Oh my. It's active, but it's not published anywhere except for okay. you know, a, a website on, on FAA.gov. So you, you, can, you can imagine our chagrin when we didn't discover, we didn't find this, uh, this podcast on our initial research. Um, cleared for takeoff has been used by uh, some aviation podcasts in the in the past that are now defunct. Um, it's used uh, by a podcast in a different language, um, like uh, I don't remember if it's uh, Bulgarian or 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 it's an Eastern European language. It felt okay. Um, and we weren't encroaching on that market, um, but uh, but with the FAA and the and maybe um, we can we can talk about search engine optimization for them. But since they have a podcast called Cleared for Takeoff, and, and because we obviously have a, a great relationship with the FAA and do a lot of work with them, we wanted to change our name. So the podcast is going to relaunch um, in early April uh, with a third episode and some revisions to our first two, and then we'll get on a more structured cadence for that. Um, but but right now and, and listeners you know will 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 probably hear this um, for the first time since we've just made a decision as to the new name. I think uh, it's 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 fair to say our new name is Future Flying. I cannot wait for that. And can I just admit a bit of professional jealousy? <laughs> I am jealous that in your first couple of shows you've had Dr. PK from NASA on before mm-hmm. I was able to get Dr. PK. Um, and so now I guess I have to look and worry about what you're doing. <laughs> Dr. PK is someone we've been working with for a while. He's a good friend. Yeah, yeah he, his, 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 uh, his lift, what he's trying to bring to industry is such an interesting problem. He's amazing. Just he amazing. is, yeah. And, and uh, now uh, with this everything being recast under... This uh, term, advanced air mobility, there's all this extra focus, all this extra attention, all this extra funding. He, he is very much a man in demand right now. Absolutely. And I hope someday to have him on. Let's, let's jump into this because we're talking about AI today. And uh, we could probably have about, what, a three-day-long podcast nonstop to go through all the iterations of what AI involves. But I, w- I want to start by talking to you about one of your former colleagues, Rob Thomas, who's now Senior Vice President of Software at IBM. And Rob recently said, and this is a little bit of a paraphrase, Mark, just a a tad one, AI is additive. It's about giving humans superpowers and automating the task that people don't really want to do in the first place. Is this a good place to start to help us understand the role of AI in aviation, or is there more nuances in this industry? How do you define AI? Well, that's an interesting question. I would say that for me, you know, I, I sort of bring a sort of a naturalist's view to the world. So I, I like I like classifying and categorizing things as as they are, right? Um, and to me, AI is simply a, a technology um, distinct from our existing tools or technology to write software applications, right? When we think about how we 
write applications on a computer, right? We're all familiar with programming languages. We're all familiar with what it is to code, even if many of us don't actually code on a daily basis or know how to code. Um, many of us, most of us, uh, especially in aviation, have been introduced to the concept of right, um, putting together an instruction set uh, that, that fits a certain logic that I'm going to feed to uh, a, a computer right, that can take that logic and turn it into a running program. Right. And AI, ultimately, you know, when we look at it as to what it is, it's, it's, a, it's a different way uh, to write programs. We're not assembling a, a set of logical instructions. We're assembling data. We're giving the computer the data we've assembled with some high-level directives and maybe some other supporting information on the side. And we're saying, here's what we want to accomplish. Here's the data, computer, figure it out. Build us that program. That's the way I look at it. So what's interesting now, and this gets back to where IBM has marketed AI, is that the nature of what we can build through this model of building software, very different, I don't wanna use the word model because model has such an overloaded term in aerospace. This method of building software being so different than a traditional method of building software than, than programming, allows us to build types of applications that would be very difficult, if not impossible, to build through traditional logical programming great example of that is the systems that understand speech and our, our accents and our languages and can respond to us right in our Siri and our Alexas and the other devices that we use. So you know, imagine having to program line by line, word by word, a system that can understand all these different languages, all these different vocabularies, all these different um, accents, being able to comprehend all that and then filter down to an appropriate response, it would take forever to do what AI has been able to do in just a couple of years. And when we think about the, the especially the type of, of, of programs that uh, we're concerned with, in the space of, of aerospace, right, and in, in, in commercial aerospace, programs that may not necessarily just be about recognizing a language or recognizing a picture or analyzing a piece of data, but being able to understand a complex environment, react to a complex environment, evaluate and decide, right? I think about the OODA loop, right? Okay. That's, another, that's another classification of a program that... Uh, yeah, that really requires AI to build at scale and at a reasonable cost and in a reasonable time frame. And think about autonomous driving cars. The reason why AI is so prevalent, machine learning is so prevalent in building autonomous driving cars, and again, speaking at this at a very high level, but imagine sitting down and then programming case statements for every single eventuality, right, that happens when you're out driving your car. You know, what, what's the programming logic for when someone kicks a kickball in front of your car as you're pulling out of your driveway? Or the trash bag. Right, or the trash bag, or what, or what have you. 
Um, what is the programming logic for getting onto the interstates in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where on certain on-ramps you have stop signs before you go and merge with the rest of traffic? Um, it's actually something, uh, it gives me a lot of comfort that there's so many autonomous driving R&D and startup and development work happening there versus places like Phoenix or where I live. You know, Pittsburgh is a, is a challenging environment to drive a car in any sense. You know, Can I just take a pause in there yeah, and please. ask you this? Is there a supercomputer big enough on this planet to understand how to react to a Pittsburgh left? Yeah. I mean, come on. I can't even think through a Pittsburgh left, which to our <laughs> listeners is a left turn on a red light where the other car has a green light and lets you, it's crazy. My four years of living in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, I'll admit I've only seen that twice. Oh, oh. So, you know, there, there are all, you know, all sorts of things that, yeah, but, but, but to the answer to that question, no, certainly yeah, there's not. I don't even think I explained the Pittsburgh left. It's unexplainable. So, so, you know, that all being said, you have written an immense body of work on AI applications, literally from the ramp to the cockpit. Mm. As you're surveying the aerospace industry, what occurs to you as, you know, those top applications that we need to pursue now because we have the technology to do it? You know, what are those superpowers the industry needs now? So it's a, it's a great question. Coming from the tech space, selling and, and providing systems into aerospace, I mean, and into aviation, right, uh, often tend to look at the industry and break it down by its value chain. Now, here's engineering and here's manufacturing and here is uh, aftermarket sustainment. And, you know, you could pick one of those areas and say, here's how AI is going to revolutionize that area. Um, I, I actually like that line of thinking um, because, you know, yeah, the, the alternative is to say, you know, here's something that connects it all. And when you sort of get into, oh, yeah, we're going to, you know, connect it all, that, that turns more into an IT discussion. So to me, I, I look at what's happening in aerospace and aviation right now. There's all this energy, there's all this focus, there's all this money on innovation, on bringing the verve of Silicon Valley into an industry that is historically very conservative and for very good reasons, right? Aerospace rules and regulations, as we say, are built in blood, very slow. Um, and, and, and very hard for new entrants and new upstarts to get into. Imagine coming down and saying, okay, you know, we have a good idea. We're going to create a commercial airliner company and, uh, build a 250 seat airliner, you know, to compete with Boeing and Airbus and no one could, no one would do it. But you see at the same time, advanced air mobility and all the attention there and, and, and the fact that that's rounded up as, as an industry with, with tremendous momentum, right? There is a need to further bring in new ideas, new entrants, new upstarts into, into aerospace and into aviation 
Um, and we've only, I thought, I think we've, we, we, we've only scratched the surface in terms of what can be done? What is the art of the possible? So when it comes back to what's the biggest thing? It's how do we lower the cost of development of safety critical systems while maintaining the safety and the assurance and the reliability and the dependability of those systems, right? And I think AI is going to do that. I think what, what AI will bring to the table, not tomorrow, not necessarily even in two years when we have our first standard released, but that will be you know, the, the start, but over the next decade, is a new means to develop aerospace systems where the cost differential for building something that is extremely safety critical, you know, as we'd say in industry speak, something at the DALE level, your, your avionics stack, your fly-by-wire system, your uh, power control systems. The, today, the cost for building those systems can be an order of magnitude higher than the cost of building a, say, a, a less safety critical system like an in-flight entertainment system. How do we bring those costs down? How do we close that differential without compromising on the safety assurance that goes into the building of those safety critical parts? I think what AI will bring is a realization of closing that differential. And once that differential is closed, then the floodgates open. Then aerospace becomes as disruptible with new ideas and, 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 and better ways of working and new inventions as we're seeing in other transportation industries and as we're seeing in other digital industries. You mentioned uh, a couple really important things there. One was the effect of regulation on industry, mm -hmm. right? Obviously a challenge for AI developers. And you just touched on this, and I think it's worth going a little bit into, and I'm gonna call it the predictability of the aviation industry. Everybody knows pilots do checklist. Mechanics have a maintenance manual that takes them from step A to double Z in a very predictable manner. Now, I'm not, as you know, I am not an AI scientist by any means, but certainly one of the challenges is when you employ these systems, audibility, the auditability of that system becomes difficult because you can't figure out how you got from point A to point Z and say, okay, this is how we're gonna map it out. And then you come back to an industry that's looking for that predictability, you know, the explanation of why the computer decided this versus that. I, I mean, how do you confront a challenge like that? So that's a that's a great question. I can I think I think what what we're talking about though, and, and, and let's be clear. So when we say in an AI system can't show you point A to point Z, in the construct of following a maintenance manual or following set procedures, if you know you're flying an airliner and it's you know do steps one through seven on the on the you know QRH or something. I, I, I disagree with that. I, I, I think AI can today you know, follow linear process, demonstrate that it's following linear process, right? And demonstrate critically that it's working in 
the interfaces and the bounds that you've designed it to work. I think what you're what you're getting at, and correct me if I'm wrong, is the sort of the broader concept. Um, and, and I'm happy to sort of explain my views on this. That AI is a black box. That the the fundamental inner workings of AI are, you know, as we say, not explainable. That is pr precisely what I'm hitting at, which is the relationship between the gigabytes of training data that you have that trains the algorithms and that black box that gives you an output. Yeah. And, you know, that's even that that's even going to have us in the next segment talk a little bit about how you take and scrub ethical bias out of your data sets. But it, it just seems to me that there is a level of uncertainty that not only needs to be explained to the regulators, but you, you also have to build that, that set of parameters and you know, those lanes for the AI. So you know, clearly that's an issue I would think that you're, you're tackling. It is, absolutely. It's in fact not an issue that we're tackling. It's the heart of what we're tackling. So, so let's, let's, um, let's first define what we mean when we say AI is a black box. And let's be okay. very clear about it because I think, I think this is an area that people often look at, have questions about, and some other forms sometimes attack. But before we can have a discussion about it, we have to have a common understanding of what it is we're talking about. So when we say that AI is a black box, what, what is usually referred to in that, what, what, what really is meant is you know, AI is a broad space of different technologies. Um, it's a, and, and this is a, a whole other conversation, I'll admit. It is oftentimes not an easily definable space. Right. So I like the definition. AI is what's cool. And once something is no longer cool, it's no longer AI. And I mean that. <laughs> All, right. Know, so, All right. So what we're really focused on when we talk about explainability in black boxes are machine learning. Right. Machine learning techniques, particularly with neural networks. Now, that's what we talk about AI. And we 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 you know, the reason we go immediately to AI as a black box or the reason we go immediately from AI to machine learning with neural networks is because it's it's that aspect of AI that has people excited. It's that aspect of AI that is going to create transformatively different types of applications, particularly the applications that can interpret what's going on around and make decisions, executive human level thinking decisions about flying an airplane or driving a car. Right? It's neural networks that will lead to autonomous systems. So a neural network is built on the construct of the, 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 the neurophysical setup of the human brain. Um, and like the human brain, right, we can imagine, well, imagine, we can observe how the human brain works. We can observe that we have synapses and that there are neurons firing in our human brain that represent um, us thinking about the world, but what we can't do is logically connect that neurophysical, you know, physiochemical observation to how we observe and perceive the world, right? That lack of connection also exists in neural networks. So when we, again, when we talked earlier about well, what's the difference between AI or what is AI? AI is a different way to build software. So in traditional software, because we've 
you know, built traditional software by providing a computer um, a set of, of, of instructions that flow in sort of a certain logic, right? We know what the computer is doing because we know the logic, right? We can, we can, we either built the program or we can look at the source code and read what the logic is. We can test the logic, right? There's, there's a, there's pure introspection in terms of being able to take a software program, decompose it, understand, well, here, here's the logical framework, here's the logical um, set of code that, that built it. We can't do that with AI. Because the same way, it's, it, what, what, we, what we've built in a neural network is a data structure, right, with uh, neurons and synapses. And that data structure, when you provide an input, produces an output. That output may be uh, driving a car or flying an airplane. But there's no way in that neural network to logically deconstruct right, how we got from that input to output. And if I'm understanding you correctly, then we probably really don't need to do that. And if, you know, there are people who insist that that needs to be done, could it be that they're missing the main point? Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. Because when we, when we sort of look at explainability from that point of view, right, what, you, what you recognize is, well, I mean, aviation's already solved this problem. So when we, when we take a pilot out on a check ride, which is you know, the tool we use to assess whether that pilot knows how to fly an airplane safely, right? It's the tool we use to assign trust mm -hmm. that the pilot you know, can operate that airplane safely. We're not putting diodes to that pilot's head and measuring the neurons and the synapses that fire in that pilot's brain. We are creating tools that work around the pilot that allow us to assess how that pilot was trained and how that pilot performs. And we could take those tools and bring them into an AI world. Now, I'm not suggesting that this is the be all answer, right? But I do think that there is a good consensus forming that this is going to be a critical piece to it. Now, right, there will be likely some level of introspection that has to happen with the neural network. And then later we'll talk about all of the work that has to come in assessing and assuring the data that is used to train that network. Because that's a huge piece. That's like, well, yeah, not anyone can go and create a ground school or flight school curriculum, right? There, there are certain principles that have to be taught. Who maintains what those principles are? That's what we have to figure out with data. How do we know we have the right data? But, right, you know, we can see the concept of training an AI with the right level of data assurance and testing the AI with a virtual AI checkride as forming a center for a model that includes introspection at the AI version of the medical exam, includes other bounding you know, pieces, other parts, multifaceted uh, approach uh, to, to solve this problem without having to do the impossible, without having to change the nature of what neural networks are. So if I, am a, if I understand you correctly, if I'm a flesh and blood pilot, it shouldn't matter how my brain thought, as long as I perform correctly on the task that I'm given. Right. It, it's almost irrelevant to, to, to wonder, you know, what went on in that pilot's brain. Um, just as with the AI, 
uh, let's focus on the performance. Is that is that right? Well, to a degree. I mean, so yeah. so there are all. I mean, obviously, when we look at you know famous air accidents or incidents, we often wonder what went on in that pilot's brain. Of course, um, there are levels to where we can interpret that, right? And there will be similar levels to how we'd be able to interpret that with AI. It's I look at that. Um, you know, the, uh, I often think, sort of think about the German Wings uh, incident where you, you horrible, had... Absolutely uh, horrible, absolutely horrible. Absolutely indeed. Um, and and we say, okay, well, the pilot you know, was, was depressed. Right? Well, you know, we don't know what the pilot was thinking. We didn't, again, wire up diodes to that pilot's head. And we, but even if we did, we'd have no way of, of, of looking at... You know the physical workings of that pilot's brain, and say, "Well, this pilot shouldn't fly anymore." So, you know, so, so you know, we we have to be able to assess at a higher level, and we can do that with AI, right? And that's part of the strategy. But but to say that you know AI certification is impossible until we make neural networks completely explainable and completely logically interpretable, I, I don't think that's the answer. Oh, I wasn't suggesting that. No. I hope not. No. <laughs> um, so, so I, I just before we close out this segment, I, I just want to hit one other thing that we touched, and and that goes back to the idea that these AI systems are based on data sets that we train algorithms off of, and anybody who looks at the newspaper will see all the issues Google has been having with their AI ethicist. We understand that in the emerging field of facial recognition and biometric recognition, that there's a real concern about biases built into these data sets. And when you look at a industry like aviation, which is as international of an industry as there probably is, there are different cultures, there are different languages, and just go through the permutations. How do you ensure that as you're building your data sets that unintentional bias doesn't accidentally leak into it? Mm. Now that, that is the question, isn't it? That, that is yeah, the question. That is the question. So, so, so I look at you know, unintentional bias is only one thing we have to solve for. The biggest thing we have to solve for is understanding what the right scope of data is to train a model, to train an AI system, right? And, and the industry, I would argue, has, has some very good practical lessons that, that, that it's learned through where it's been applying AI and big data on the airplane over the last 10 years, at least where it's been attempting to, and that is in predictive maintenance. Um, so my background in terms of rising to to lead the industry standards effort for AI for aerospace for aviation um, it didn't come out of nowhere it's, it came out of my work primarily in MRO and with predictive maintenance systems and working on predictive maintenance systems at Airbus and at Honeywell and with airlines all over the world and what we learn is that first and foremost yeah, you never have as much data as you'd like, uh, particularly in commercial aviation. That's an entirely other subject. But oftentimes, even if you had all of the data that you could ever ask for that may be coming off an engine or that may be coming off a bleed valve or, or something, 
that alone isn't enough. You know, there's a, a, a good question out there. I could have petabytes of engine vibration data. That sounds like a lot. It's a lot. It's, okay. a, it's a tremendous amount, right? A tremendous amount of engine vibration data off, uh, pick an engine, but yeah, any, any CFM 56. All right, I could have the world's repository of CFM 56, yeah. right? Vibration data, the Airbus version, the 737 version, yeah, even the retrofitted CFM 56 is flying on old 707s and DC8s. I still probably won't be able to get uh, to a critically useful predictor because I need more than just the engine vibration data. I might need air quality data. I might need weather data. I might need pilot performance and FOCA data. And good luck getting that from the unions, right? Um, I might need uh, uh, even um, you know, ground data. Uh, around the airports and, and a whole host of flight history. Understanding what the data space is, is a critical question, you know, and, 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 and building assurance models to that, that's, that's a, an area where we're focused and we're working with uh, IAZA and the FAA and other leaders in the space to figure out a model to answer that. Ethical bias comes into that question as well, right? You know, data is a representation of life. Life tends not to be fair and, 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 and ethical um, and, and uh, equal. So we have to be mindful when it's a critical requirement as it is in, in, in many AI applications to, to account for that, to engineer for that, right? Uh, one of the more interesting things we're working through right now is, you know, in, in traditional aerospace engineering, you know, it, it, it's uh, so much of uh, the success or failure of a project comes down to the requirements and how those requirements are managed through a validation and verification chain. And one of the things that we have to and are working to figure out in this new world is what do data requirements look like and how do data requirements play in a traditional aerospace validation and verification chain or right do we need a new type of validation and verification model that better fits ai so so those are some active questions that you know the the standards boards with regulators are exploring right now and i want to hit that particular subject in just a little bit. Sure. But first, I want to talk about being Mark Roboff. <laughs> okay? I want to talk about being you. Because growing up, I understand that there are these influences in your life that made you the kid asking for model trains and cable cars and trolleys as presents and not necessarily airplanes like the rest of us. And I, I hear that your grandfather was an electronics enthusiast. Your father is a train enthusiast. And your favorite museum growing up was the Seashore Trolley Museum in Maine. That's right. And, and the people who know you best say all of your passion involves transportation and it started there. So tell me about your memories there and, and how that museum turned you into the AI maven that you are now. I don't know if it was that museum. I, I grew up, I grew up uh, in New York City and right outside uh, in, in, in suburban Westchester County and yeah, loved trains as a little kid. I, I had uh, when I was 
my my son's age. He's about turning four. I lived in an apartment uh, in, in downtown Scarsdale, New York, uh, overlooking the commuter rail tracks. And you know, I would, or at least I'm told, because who remembers things from when they were two or three? I, I would spend my afternoons glued to the window watching the trains coming by. So that that's what seeded, I guess, an interest in, in that. And I remember going up to, even in second grade, uh, when my teacher uh, asked all of us what we wanted to do when we grew up, I said, I want to run New York's MTA. <laughs> okay. That, that, that is great. And then, but that doesn't explain it how doesn't. you so, wind up in the aviation in industry. Aviation. So, you should be head of WMATA, head of MTA. Maybe. Well, so I'll tell you how I got out of you know, wanting to do that and how I got yeah. into aviation. So then in ninth grade, my mother bought me a copy of Robert Cairo's The Power Broker. And I read through that and I realized two things. What I really wanted to be with Robert Moses um, and, okay. not, and not president of the MTA. And the, the last thing I wanted to do was run that organization because you know, it, it, the funny thing about uh, you know, that, that, that organization and transit agencies in general is that they're designed for people... Uh, they're, well, let me rephrase that. So they're designed uh, in part, you know, I say this somewhat tongue-in-cheek, to prevent people uh, from single-handedly shaping transportation, right? It, it, they're designed to prevent people from, like Robert Moses, from uh, running amok in cities ever again. Um, and, and you know, it, it's actually, it's funny. It's why the MTA, the organization that runs the New York City subway and the New York City commuter trains and the New York City buses and the New York City bridges, um, is not a New York City entity. It, it gets its power and reports to Albany. But that's, again, that's a, a, I digress. So I've always, I've always loved aviation. Um, you know, it, it may not have been at the center of my childhood, but when I, when I finally look back at uh, where I was always happiest or most excited about uh, things, it was always when I was getting on an airplane, going down to visit <laughs> uh, relatives in Florida, or I remember, you know, my first international trip to London when I was 10. And my, my passion for aviation matched my passion for trains. You know, I would, I would always know even when I was four or five years old, what type of plane I was flying on. I always had to have a window seat, right? There's 727s and, and L1011s, which was my perennial favorite growing up, right? I remember, um, and I, again, at 10 years old, vivid memories of, of my, my, my father shares this passion a little bit, of being uh, passengers on one of the first MD-11s uh -huh. uh, and doing a Cat 3 landing in fog at Heathrow. You know, in, in the dark of night. So we took that like the one, old auto land, the old auto land. Right. Yeah. And being very impressed with the MD-11's capabilities, you know, which you know, I guess back in this was 1993, 1994. Right. Uh, you know, before I think the world had a good pre you know, understanding of what the MD-11 did well and did not do well. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, so, so I've always I've always loved flying. I've always been technical. I've always been very passionate about aviation but what really drove me uh to say i want to dedicate the rest of my you know life my career to this field was when i got into my professional work life and uh, started traveling uh, a gazillion miles a year and started thinking about um, just how much time I spend on planes and, 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 and my fascination with it, my love of it, 
and wanting to interface with that and, and impact that world. Right? And you are, and you have been. I hope so, in a positive yeah, well, way. In, in, in a positive way and a demonstrable way. Let's move a little forward in your life, and, mm-hmm. and I want to talk about Watson. Sure. You are an alumnus of IBM, and you were there in 2011 when Watson trounced two of the greatest Jeopardy players in history. And let's start talking about what's the environment like at IBM on that fateful night? I mean, are you guys having Jeopardy parties, or is this like JPL, and you're waiting for that seven minutes of terror to happen, and you don't know if there's going to be a crater or a rover on another planet planet what tell me about ibm or wasn't it a big deal watson no it was a very big deal and and i was still relatively new at ibm but but already engaged in um you know a a part of our software suite there i still say our uh, part of 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 ibm software suite that that made up the watson technical stack is very much the former it was Jeopardy parties. Everyone was really very excited. It was a, a huge splash. There was a lot of confidence in the organization that we would make a huge mark on the world. Um, it was sort of the next big bet. Uh, it, everyone was comparing it to uh, Big Blue, which was the chess computer that beat Gary Kasparov in the you know in the nineties, and. Uh, you know, it, it, it started quite a journey uh, for me and, and for uh, international business machines when it came out and did what it did. And what it did was, was impressive. Let me just dig into a couple details uh, about Watson and then maybe end up and say, well, how come we're not hearing more about it today? I mean, I've read about Watson, and clearly the focus on that system was natural language processing. Mm-hmm. And one of one of the, on something that impressive, you can't say one of the weak points, but one of the realities was it didn't do structured data like numbers and images. You know, and, and I get that that's, you know, seven, eight years ago now. But as the field of AI has progressed... Are there AI systems that can merge the data with the language and come up with intelligent conclusions about what it's processing? Or did I just talk about two separate specialized machines there? So good question. Very good question. I'm trying to think about how I want to answer this in as clear a way as possible. So I'm going to say two things. So when we talk about Watson as an AI machine, you know, we come, we, 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 we again hit the issue that AI is a very broad term, right? And that was some of the challenge we had is when we defined Watson as being able to, you know, do AI, is Watson being the AI machine, where in fact it was really focused, as you mentioned, around natural language processing and, and, and providing huge advancements to the state of the art in terms of semantics and semantic processing, right? I think that, that some of the stumbling we had was uh, expectations on what it is, what it can do, um, weren't necessarily set as precisely as they should be. So AI, you know, broadly works with all sorts of data, all sorts of data, right? AI can work with structured data, AI can work with unstructured data, 
AI can work with, uh, with visual and auditory data. But when we think about Watson as a semantic processing system, right, natural language processing system. So understanding speech or words. Exactly. Yeah. So, so uh, it is a challenge, and it is still, there's, it is not, a, to, to, to my knowledge, um, and, and I was actually looking this up recently, it's still not a solved problem. Um, being able to have a semantic uh, uh, processing system like Watson correctly read, uh, read's the easy part, but, but correctly read and then interpret data from structured sources that are intermixed, right? That is not easy to do, and it is not yet a solved, ubiquitous capability. So, for instance, right, um, think of a, a airline or airplane maintenance manual. An airplane maintenance manual might be prose, unstructured text, but is it really? It's 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 even though it's 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 written in English, and there's paragraphs and smaller paragraphs. Really, it's 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 highly structured, unstructured text, right? It's a list of steps. It's a list of conditions. If you see this, do that. Otherwise, skip here, right? And at the bottom of a lot of maintenance manual or, or fault isolation tasks, there's data in tables. This is the type of content where semantic processing systems still today stumble. Let's circle back to one of your, I wanna say passions, because I think it is, and maybe what you're best known for, and that's SAE's G34 Aerospace AI Implementation and Certification Committee and thank God that's got the short name. Okay, that's right. Because you, you and 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 we have to also mention that we are a joint international committee with EuroK Working Group One One Four. But that's the that that's the world of standards. I appreciate that, but my <laughs> semantic search did not allow me to add more data fields that's than fair. that. So I went for for what I thought was maybe shorthand. But anyways, you are leading five hundred of the top aviation professionals in the industry looking at the future of AI and looking for standards for AI. And I've got to ask you the basic question, okay? And we touched this a little bit, but really why do we need standards? What, what you know, what's a standard gonna give us that we don't have right now? What's, what's the end product of all the work you guys are gonna do? So why do we need standards? Um, that's a, I'm thinking about the best way to answer that question. I'll give a tongue-in-cheek answer because I think it really does hit it um, right on the uh, nail on the head, and then I'll, I'll give the diplomatic one. Um, so I, I uh, frequent in my sort of daily internet reading um, a Reddit-like bulletin board called Hacker News, and comes out of my startup days, and something I've kept with me at big companies and small. It's a website that's produced by a very famous startup incubator called Y Combinator. And I read it because I, you know, I, I, I like to, you know, keep a pulse on, you know, what, what is the current hubbub coming out of startups in Silicon Valley. And there was a post a couple of weeks ago, uh, had nothing to do with aviation, had nothing to do with aerospace, but it was a post from someone who was complaining about Standards, IEEE <laughs> standards and ISO standards and complaining about yep, how yep. you have to pay a lot of money to get the standards, right? And I worked for an organization that made you pay too. So Indeed, go ahead. yeah. 
And and um, it was questioning what good these things were when you know, everyone aspires to open source software development and and Silicon Valley aspires as a whole to be able to do things faster and more cheaply and and and, and to have you know, more freedom to go go go, right? And and sort of the 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 best comment. <laughs> Is that standards are laws that no one tells you about until you learn about them, and then you have to go pay to read what they are and comply, <laughs> or your product doesn't go to the market. Correct. You're not making any money. So, in a regulated industry, right, where the you know such as aviation, where the regulators say it's it's important that we maintain a safe environment. It's been important that we maintain a regulated environment, but we want the, 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 the actual criteria for what is safe and how safety is demonstrated come from industry, right? And not have just us regulators at the FAA or EASA or Transport Canada or CCAC or wherever, right? Dictate them to you. Well, the way that the industry conveys those specifications conveys those requirements are through standards and in aerospace right what what an engineering standard really is in many cases and critically in our case is a means of compliance right so if you want to build an airplane to have all these advanced features like fly-by-wire and an avionics stack right glass cockpit all all the things that now, we've taken for granted in, in, the, in the world of commercial aviation circa 1985 and onwards, you're going to need to comply with these standards that, uh, that uh, take you through how to, from a, from, a, from a performance standpoint, from a performance requirement standpoint, and yes, um, in, in many ways, um, uh, at the very least implicitly, if not explicitly, from a methodology standpoint, Right? You're going to have to demonstrate that you adhere to these to these requirements. So it's sort of I, I sort of like that definition somewhat. It's like these laws that you know you don't know about until until it's too late, and then you have to pay to actually read what the laws are. <laughs> because if yeah, you don't it, follow it, you don't bring something. You know, you don't get to bring your 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 good to market. And, and, you know, the corollary that I run in, into in my own business is this. I have companies approach me and say, we hate that standard. Go get it changed. And you're like, that's not going to happen. You know, you could pay me, but I could tell you I'm not going to be changing an SAE standard so that your business model is, uh, you know, somehow taken into account of. You know, that that's not something that happens right. after the fact. Yeah. Let me ask you, you know, in terms of standards... As you look at the work product for the committee for uh, 2021 and 2022, what are the committee members telling you are the things that the committee needs to needs to flesh out more? Needs to you know what's what's the work product look like over the next year or two? Great question. So the work product right now is building a first generation. I'm going to call it a first generation aerospace standard that. We hope the FAA and IASA and Transport Canada and ANAC down in Brazil and all the other regulatory agencies that are working with us will adopt as a means of compliance for AI systems. Now, 
that is not going to bring about the concept of the virtual check ride. It is not going to bring about the concept of you treat an AI autonomous system like a human pilot. Uh, you know, and and, and, and the, the concept that we talked about actually has a name. It's called AI licensing. Um, and I, you know, it's fine. A lot of people have come up uh, with the concept uh, over the last few years in, in independent you know, settings and forums, but um, the article or the, the white paper that I point to that, that really describes it in the best detail was written maybe six years ago uh, for NASA uh, by a technical fellow at Collins with a technical fellow at Honeywell. I, I want to double check that because I think that's, that, that's correct. I have the white paper in my drawer. Uh, but, but we need to start somewhere. So the first standard is going to address validation and verification in an AI lifecycle. It's going to address you know, the, the overarching high-level principles of how we might solve for explainability over the long term, even if it won't necessarily take an applicant who's building auto, the inflatable autopilot, to certification that will come in time. Um, it will address simpler levels of machine learning, um, and it will uh, address uh, the fundamental questions and requirements around data assurance, which we talked about. Um, I'm also hoping, uh, and this is something that I've been I've been building towards with the committee and its leadership lately. It'll address simulation. Simulation is a really key piece of how we intend to verify AI neural networks, trained neural networks. And I'm not talking about physics simulation systems that aerospace engineers use. Like, this is not Microsoft Flight Simulator or the Pilot Simulators, correct? It this is. is a diff it is. It is. Okay. So I'm not talking about things like Simulink or MATLAB. I'm talking about Microsoft Flight Simulator, right? Okay. So full flight simulation is a critical tool. And and it's funny you mentioned Microsoft Flight Simulator or, or X-Plane because when you look at all of the autonomous system R&D that the industry does, R&D, mind you, not necessarily commercial product development, they're done in systems like Microsoft Flight Simulator and X-Plane. Right? That's where they all start. Um, I've, I've, I've worked on a couple of projects in X-Plane and in, and in not, not the old Microsoft Flight Simulator, but, but uh, Lockheed Martin's prepared 3D which, oh yes, know it well. Right, which actually never ran on my computer, but that's another. You, story. You, I, I was listening to your uh, podcast uh, last night with Stella Wagner, who, who I've come to know, and uh, and uh, you mentioned what can I go to uh, buy from the Boeing company if I go to Boeing.com. I laughed at that because you can go to LockheedMartin.com as as an independent you know URI and go buy something and get a receipt from Lockheed Martin. <laughs> Prepare 3D for folks who don't know. When Microsoft Flight Simulator sold, and this is not the brand new one that just came out in August, which is an amazing, amazing uh, platform. But the old platform that was developed up until about 2005, 2006 had always this commercial version that was used in advanced training devices and other systems. When Microsoft shut down the, the studio for the old flight simulator, Lockheed Martin bought the IP for the commercial version, modernized it, and continues to sell it today. So I'm a, a you know, and, and I'm a, I've been a long time prepared 3D uh, fan. But anyway, yes, it's those systems that people are using to explore the world of autonomy and aviation. 
when we think about the concept of the virtual check ride, when we think about the concept of how we will uh, evaluate these uh, these neural networks, these these AI systems we build, before we even think about how we implement it onto the airplane and begin the old fun traditional flight tests that cost so much money, right? We know flight simulation is going to play a huge role. Now it may not be that we go to CAE or to Talus and buy our level D full, full you know full motion flight simulators, right? But we need the ingredients that go into that, right? We need the the virtual world. We need the binaries, the real binaries of the real fly-by-wire systems and the avionic systems and the power control systems, right? Um, which we, we then connect to that virtual world. And, and then we need to put the AI systems on top of that, right? And then we need to have a platform that allows us to write and run tests. Now, the, the really cool thing is that if we can define this environment that um, we can look at and say, this is so robust, this is so accurate and reflective of real life that we could use it as a facsimile for real life, that's where we talked earlier about reducing the cost of, of safety critical system development. That's going to be a major driver of that, right? Because what, what used to be done physically in the physical world can now be done virtually, right? In a virtual world, in a extraordinarily accelerated time frame at an extraordinarily reduced cost, right? And we can also leverage the power of computers to test for many more cases and many more scenarios than we'd be able to do in real life. So flight simulation is, is again, it's, 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 that, it's, the, it's that next piece. So that's where we've been focused. Now, whether that makes it into the standard and that we're, we're, we're due to you know, produce in the next year and a half or not is TBD, but it's gonna be what we focus on right after, along with AI licensing and explainability and, and all the ingredients that will get us to auto the autopilot. So when we talk about standards, and just in this conversation of the past you know half hour, we've talked about some incredibly technical issues We've talked about some incredibly brilliant people who are doing this work. And certainly there are companies that are under great competitive pressure to break into this marketplace. So you put your chairman's hat on for a second and you have these 500 passionate people and companies around you. Can you share with the audience, you know, how does something become a standard? Are you taking a vote and if it's 51, 49, it becomes a standard? Does it have to be like some organizations, a hundred to nothing, everybody has to agree. How do you figure out when you put the gavel down and say, metaphorically, this is the standard? Uh, how do you measure that? Great question. So a standard is, I think, most everywhere, if not everywhere, if not by definition, a consensus-driven document. So when a standard is released to the public, know that it has reached the consensus of the committee. So different, different standards development organizations have different processes for uh, demonstrating officially that consensus has been reached. But it is not simply done in, in, a, in, the, in the confines of a single isolated vote, although within SAE, 
Um, and within Eurocave, for, for the standards, not for every single document, but for the standards, there's a voting process, right? Um, consensus is achieved over time, right? And day by day uh, in the committee meetings and in the subgroup meetings and in the working groups, piece by piece, right? And, and the, really the success of a committee is in its ability to facilitate the necessary dialogue and discourse in the right context, in the right environment, for consensus to be achieved. Um, and that's what I'm most concerned with as chairman. So, uh, you know, I, I have a, an engineering background, software engineering background, right? I've never worked professionally as an aerospace engineer, although having taken this role, I'm, I'm now quite familiar with the standards and the worlds and the processes of aerospace engineering. But, but the value that I and my leadership team brings to the table is not that we're solving all the technical questions or even contributing that much to the technical content. Now, we're stewards of the organization. We have to make sure that the standards that well, sorry, we have to make sure that the committee we run you know, works well, that the people in it work well together that that discourse is flowing that dialogue is allowed and that we're we're guarding and fostering ever so the environment for people to build consensus so mark in my introduction i kind of mentioned the french riviera and you were cto at orpheus tech music licensing and when i found out about that you know because it's on your linkedin page i kind of scratched my head and i said that seems to be a career detour from your roots at Carnegie Mellon. I, you know, living up in Pittsburgh, being close to Carnegie Mellon, having friends that are on the faculty there. I kind of had this perception of what a person pursues after they work on AI at CMU. And I saw that and I just kind of was, was scratching my head. And, and I'm told by people around you that there was this really fascinating technical challenge on a platform under development and you weren't necessarily attracted by the allure of the music industry i'm thinking isn't that backwards shouldn't it be you know you're attracted to the music industry and the glamour around it um but actually there's a, this challenge can you tell us a little bit about that technical challenge that you know kind of brought you off on that on that detour more of a business challenge than a technical challenge. And yeah, I love the music industry. Um, you know, I'll, I'll explain how I got into that uh, and, and uh, you know, how, I, how, how maybe that helped me get into aviation. There are some spurious links. So <clears throat> after I graduated in 2005, I had a couple of different opportunities that I was looking at, right? One, which was very common with folks who graduated my university in 2005, was to go into the world of finance. This was post-dot-com boom. This was the, you know, the big, let's all go make a ton of money in financial services. This is before you know, financial services has now resurged a little bit as fintech. And that's the path for CMU students. Yeah, well, yeah. I was, I was uh, 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 interviewing with Wells Fargo and going into their leadership development program. And the program was structured as such where they were going to put half the people they accepted into 
San Francisco, which is where I really wanted to end up. And then the other half into Phoenix, uh, really Chandler, Arizona, which is a suburb of Phoenix. Okay, I get that. <laughs> right, and 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 you can you, you can guess where they wanted me to go. Yeah. And I said no, thank you. Now, of course, right um, here we here we here we sit talking sixteen years later, um, and I, I uh, Phoenix is a quick hour flight away. I've spent a great amount of time there. Great many friends in the Phoenix area. Of course, yeah, Honeywell Aerospace is based there. So, I, you know, I've, I've ended up getting to know Phoenix well, regardless. Um, but but because I turned down that position, I started looking for things locally. And um, what came up at the time, you know, this is a first job, was a software developer at a small stock photo company. So my first few years in cutting my teeth in software engineering were in stock photos. And... Now, as I was learning about the business of stock photography, you know, what, what really puzzled me was that the value of a stock photography license is not in any way connected to the intrinsic value or the worth of the picture. It's, in, it's connected entirely to how that picture is going to be used, uh-huh. right? Um, and the digital photography revolution, I still remain an avid digital, well, an avid photographer, um, you know, has, has had, had created all of these new models in stock photography around crowdsourcing. Because now you know, anyone with talent can now access the tools and the production workflow has been revolutionized by digital SLRs, right? Where, uh, you know, the... the you know, the, the whole industry is being upended. So um, my aunt, uh, who is you know, based out here in L.A., who is a very, success, is a very successful um, country music songwriter. Uh-huh. If you know the song This Kiss by Faith Hill. You know, she I've wrote, heard of that. Yes. Yeah, so she wrote that a whole bevy of other things. Okay. Um, she was you know, <laughs> okay. my connection into the music industry. And, yeah. And in music industry, right, what attracted me to the business of the music industry, again, from a, from a licensing standpoint, is you don't have that same issue with stock photos. In fact, the price of a license is tied inherently to right, the worth of a song, the cultural worth of the song. Um, I mean, that's sort of how the music industry revolves. So without getting into too much detail, the business challenge and the technological platform that we're building to solve the business challenge was that there are several different types of music licenses that drive several different types of playing music, right? There's a type of music license that you know, you'd get if you were to buy a CD. There's a type of music license for when you're playing, if you're the owner of a pub or you're the manager of the pub and you put on music on your pub, well, there's a type of license for that. Is there a license for a dopey podcast like mine? Well, you're getting to that, (laughs) I I am paying for this, folks. If you hear the music at the beginning, I am paying for it. But I digress. So so then there's the license for using music in film or TV or radio. That's called a sync license. So in the other two types of licenses, there are companies that through their history in the, in, the, in the industry, became sort of de facto facilitators of, of those type of licenses. 
So there's this company, I guess I don't, I, I haven't been involved in music in well over a decade. So with everything moving to streaming, I'm not sure what they do today, but historically there was a company that managed all the licenses for CD production. It was called the Harry Fox Agency. Okay. There are a couple of companies that manage the use of licenses for public performance, you know, bars and restaurants. Uh, you may have heard of a company called ASCAP, right? Never. Never. Or Sorry. BMI. Not my world. Right. For sync licenses, there is no facilitator. There is no process to manage uh, holistically at an industry level uh, how licenses could be or how music could be discovered for sync and how those licenses could be brokered and negotiated. So what Orpheus was, was an attempt, you know, via building a digital platform to become that facilitator. You know, we would have a storefront, it would look a little bit like iTunes. You would have music producers and, and music supervisors uh, who work on films and advertisements and shows come to the storefront discover music right and then our our back-end system would help facilitate uh a negotiated license and we'd take a cut of that and and the value to the rights holders was automating that process which to then maybe still today happens off paper and fax machines and you know disconnected ad hoc systems okay and and you have to answer this question for sure me. so you walk into your boss's office and you say, boss, I need to go to Medim and Khan. And the boss says, what? I'm not sending one of my AI gurus there? Or he says, go go ahead. <laughs> well, the, the company was three people. It was myself and two co-founders. Right? Okay. And it wasn't it wasn't my idea to go to It was Medim. Uh, it wasn't okay. my idea. It was my co-founders because they came from the music industry. They said, yeah. this is going to be where we, uh, where, where we go and, and hit it big. I will never forget that uh, conference because getting there was somewhat disastrous and it really you know i think tripped me up and and uh, you know i i don't know if it was why the company didn't work i mean there are confluence of factors it was still very soon after napster and it was still when the industry didn't trust digital but yeah, I mean, I have to think that, you know, with Napster being founded and, and big in 1999 and 2000, you come on the scene, there has got to be debris all over the music industry regarding Napster. Yeah, and, so, and navigating that was a challenge. But what, well, I'll tell you the, because it's an aviation story, what tripped us up, what tripped me up for Meetup was the flight over. Yeah. JFK to Nice which Delta has, has run for ages and ages. This was, I, I get there, I'm young, you know, not too long out of college. This is before I understood the world of business travel and how to succeed at frequent flyer programs yeah. and upgrades, and, and, and it's before I knew any of that. So it's just a guy in, you know, seat 36F. So I get to JFK. This is the old Terminal 3, the old Pan Am World Port. There's this little bistro in the center of that you know, round, rotunda part of, of that terminal. And whatever I ate gave me food poisoning. No! And I had probably the most miserable flight of my life flying on 
a pre-renovated Delta 767 with no seat back IFE. It was just me, the seat in front of me, and my barf bag, and two seatmates on either side. I was in the middle seat, right, who were very displeased with what was going on. And I was sick for a couple of days, you know, and it was hard to recuperate from that. That taught me a lot about how to fly successfully, right? Well, and that sounds like an inflection point. I mean, if you were the model of health when you landed in France, you might never have come back and we might never have seen you in the aviation industry. Maybe. It's funny, you can, <laughs> so, you know, I've actually been back and I've done more work in that in that area. Yeah. IBM used to have a office uh, up in the hills north of Cannes in a town called Lagode. Um, so so I've, I've, I've been back. The funny thing about Orpheus is that it's inspiring a lot of work I'm actually doing today outside of the AI engineering realm. Um, the other area that I've done a tremendous amount and continue to do a tremendous amount of work in is MRO, especially digital in MRO. Which would be MRO meaning maintenance for the airline industry, right? Exactly. Fixing planes. Maintenance, repair, and overhaul. So I, yeah. I mentioned that where I cut my teeth in AI in this industry was in building predictive maintenance systems and, and designing predictive maintenance solutions for airlines. And it's a great field. Lots of interesting, fascinating, complex technical challenges to work on. The biggest challenge to work on of which is to figure out how to get airlines to pay for predictive maintenance. Oh, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. And, and today, where I and, and uh, a few friends are focused, not on predictive maintenance, but in, just like with Orpheus, facilitating data across an ecosystem. So when you look at... Um, some of the challenges in in just the the operations of airlines uh, and 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 their supply chain right yeah it's it's not just within an airline but it's how does an airline interact with boeing and airbus and honeywell and collins and right uh, uh zodiac and all the different cost you know customers that make up the supply chain so we know i don't know if you've ever had a uh, it's always fascinated to me that Buying an airline is not like buy, buying an airplane if you're an airline. It's not like buying a car. It's like buying a house. You know, if Toll Brothers builds you a house, they're not going to maintain your refrigerator. So you, as the homeowner, need to have a relationship with, you know, all of your vendors. Some horrible insurance company somewhere. <laughs> yes, but that's that's something else. So, so uh, yeah, the, the world of facilitating data across that MRO supply chain is, is one that is very manual uh, and very inefficient. And there's a tremendous opportunity uh, with the right folks to facilitate a platform that can digitize that and drive upwards of $33 billion of value to all of the stakeholders in that MRO ecosystem. So this is where we're talking about things like federated systems of records and blockchain and how do you, how do you take a part and have a perfect representation of that part's history, its flight hours, its maintenance records, um, so that when you, you need to calculate the remaining service life for that part, 
You can do that instantaneously, automatically, and at an extremely low cost. And also be able to, because you have all the data in one place, you can now have a much more accurate read on the remaining service life of a part. You know, that, that uh-huh. in many cases increase the value of a part. Um, and that could be a rep, uh, an immediate revenue recognition opportunity for a part holder. So um, when we think about, you know, facilitating the build of this system, there's a, a, a very good time to do it. And that's right now, right? Because we have COVID. Um, we have an industry that's been very hardly hit. And we now have the industry that's going to look at now recovering. Yeah, if we can build a system that can facilitate across the ecosystem all of this data flow, we can take a tremendous amount of cost out of the business of doing the recovery. Now, my crystal ball says, and I, I don't have any good reason to say this, but it sounds like you're a man who's figured that out already, or at least major portions. That, so. uh, yes. And, <laughs> and That's the next podcast, right, Mark? That, that'll be the next one. I'll say that it, it's not so much you know, figuring out the technical hires how we're going to do it. It's about assembling the right group of people, the yeah. right musketeers with the right level of experience and connections in industry and leadership in industry to get everyone at the table build consensus on how we're going to solve the problem, facilitate a solution. And I'm looking forward to next steps in that. So as we are coming to the end of our hour together, actually a little bit more, I I just want to ask you about something that was um, related to me, about some of your hobbies or one of your hobbies. So when I think of Mark, I think of this guy who can command the attention of the largest supercomputer in the world, right? You know, whether it's Watson, whether whatever it is, you're, you're the guy who feels comfortable in that world. Yet I understand you're a bit of a hardware hacker yourself, that you build your own computers and you mm-hmm. show off your own computers to your family. Tell me, what is in this latest build? I think it was last month. What are you doing with it? And uh, what kind of hardware is in there? I mean... Uh, uh, are you trying to build your own supercomputer or yeah. do Ethereum mining or what the heck? <laughs> Funny you mention. <laughs> so I was just looking at Ethereum mining. <laughs> hey, that hour was my crystal ball it. working. Okay, there, there you go. So yes, I, I, I used to and now once again do thanks to COVID and being grounded for a year, have a hobby in building very high performance, very customized computers. Back in the 2000s, I would shop around for different batches of the same CPU trying to find a batch that I could competitively overclock. Okay. Which is a thing, which, which yeah, people do. Yeah, yeah. You're speaking right? my language. And, and back then it was, you know, perusing the right um, bulletin boards, right, online, you know, the right websites with the right forms and, you know, you're, you're reading batch codes off Intel Core 2 processors and you know, sort of swapping okay. around. Right. Um, that's when liquid nitrogen just became a thing. I never quite got to dabble in that, but would build um, these highly complex custom water cooling loops before they became in vogue, I suppose. Uh, today, you know, uh, those forms are largely gone and, and the industry of that the hobby centers around a couple of key YouTube channels. But, you know, it's been nice to get back into it. Uh, I built a computer in 2010 that at the time had sort of the best of the best with everything. I had just started with IBM. 
I, that's where I really started traveling upwards of 200,000 miles a year. Loved the out and about life. And you know, that computer that I built in 2010 served me perfectly fine up until last August. Uh, and then, you know, I, I, cause, cause, you know, certain, at a certain time, 10 year old componentry that you use every day, right? It starts to degrade in its performance yeah. and it's, and it's reliability. And because I was grounded and because I, you know, needed something to do to take my mind off the misery of is the whole world collapsing. I said, it'd be a great time to build a new computer. And I, I carried forth the same philosophy. Uh, of last time and, and also said, okay, I, you know, all the work we're doing with standards and standards, by the way, it's all volunteer, so I'm not getting company uh, equipment, nor is anyone else getting a company equipment, you know, to, to uh, do, um, you know, proof of concepts or tests on it. I said, well, I mean, I can go the extra mile here and justify getting, you know, those sort of the, again, the, the, the best of the best and, and uh, you know it'll last for another ten years. So today, um, and I, I mean, I'll show you a picture of it with my webcam here. As well, and we'll post that on the show notes page. Sure. Get, get why an, not? A, a nice, wonderful picture. So, oh this my! Is, it has all lights. Lights for me are like three D televisions back in the two thousand. If you want high end equipment, you get the lights, whether you want them or not. Just like if you wanted a good TV. 10 years ago, you got 3D, whether you want it or not. But the CPU is a 24-core CPU, mm-hmm. uh, which is, I would say, 18 more cores than my last CPU. Um, All right. It has 128 gigabytes of RAM. I remember back in the 90s when 128 megabytes of RAM was an amazing thing and leading edge. Well, do you remember 128K yes, of I memory? Do. Yeah, yeah, that's okay. I remember when, right, you know, uh, yeah, having we're four gigs guys you were going, oh, cock yeah. and a walk. Yeah. Um, the, crowning, the crowning achievement is probably the video card. Please, I saw the, the letters RTX. Please don't tell me it's 3080 or 3090 because I'm going to cry to end this episode. It's a 3090. Oh, oh, how did you do that? So I'm not going to say, but I I will say that I got it at at list price and didn't have to use a scalper. You want to know what I did? I logged in. I I got to the NVIDIA website Mm -hmm. actually for the day that the 3080 was launching. And I started clicking my cart almost 15 minutes before. Boom, I get the RTX 3880 in the cart. I've had my account made already. Yeah. And by the time I get to put my credit card number in, it's gone. I, I, I tried Did, that too. I had that experience uh, as well. Uh, I'm going to say something bad about crypto miners, but that's well, so that's not that's not what's driving. I mean, it's... This is a, it's an incredible issue right now. So it's a little bit of crypto mining. I didn't buy, I bought this for AI. Yeah. And, 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 you know, for Flight Simulator and, and for some other games, but mainly for AI and, and, and to make it available to my team at SAE. And uh, it helps that uh, I have, um, again, friends at NVIDIA who work with me on this you know, subject. But again, I'm not going to say how I got it. What 
is so fascinating right now is yes, you know, if I wanted to part with the card, I'd sell it for like double what I paid for it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Some other cards are going for triple, which exactly. is insane. It is. But it's not crypto. Crypto's a, an element. There's a huge shortage in silicon manufacturing. It's a huge supply chain issue. It's quite fascinating. I've heard all sorts of different things as to why. I think right now people just say it's it's just supply and demand. It's 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 frenzy. It's everyone who would typically order large enterprises, right? Who would typically order three to six months of inventory got spooked. Like with the with the with the toilet paper scare back yeah. a year ago and started ordering oh God, yeah. three four years of inventory right but but um, and then I heard uh, this is interesting I heard uh, when I was building this um, back in August so this is before we had the huge perverse supply chain issues with hardware that we have now but at the time I could I mean I, for everything else but the thirty ninety I picked up at my local micro center. Which is now the only real computer store in California now that Fry's has finally given up the ghost. You know, oh, say it ain't so. They've been in zombie mode for the last few uh, years. But, I did not know yeah. that. But then again, I'm living in North Carolina, so I wouldn't. So, so yeah, the CPU and the RAM and the motherboard and everything else came from Micro Center except for you know the GPU, which I got later. But the only thing back then that I couldn't get was the power supply. So there was a huge power supply shortage. Now it's a huge everything shortage. And what I was told at the time, I thought this was really fascinating, was the issue, and I don't know if this is true or not, I just thought it was fascinating. Um, and I've sort of tried to research this and can't corroborate the story, so maybe it's not true, is that it wasn't necessarily that anyone had trouble making power supplies. It was the preferred mode of transportation from power supplies to from China where they're made to the United States, it's not on right cargo over the ocean. It was not necessarily even on FedEx or UPS planes. It was in cargo on passenger aircraft. Uh, okay, well, right? Because you know, United and America. United has United Cargo. American has American Cargo. Delta has Delta Cargo. Air China has okay, Air China Pacific, Cargo. Pacific fill out. Yeah, know, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. So, so apparently all these power supply you know, OEMs like Seasonic and, and so the others had all their contracts with just the passenger airlines. And what happened with COVID? They all stopped flying to China. Yeah. I, I, look, I, 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 to, I totally get that. Yeah. Um, I had a, a career that was at uh, intersected in and out of the air cargo industry. And, and I understand how critical that supply chain is. Um, there was always a fact we talked about where it was something like air cargo only carries four or five percent of goods. But in the end, it carries goods that have a value of over thirty percent. You know, so it's yeah. it's for the for the, the the most expensive and and time critical cargo. One of the coolest but, things yeah. I've ever seen loaded onto an airplane. This was three or four years ago. I was still with IBM. I was flying for for whatever reason. I was flying Stuttgart to Atlanta. Right. I know I was in Stuttgart because IBM's German headquarters are south of Stuttgart. And I was doing some work uh, with my team there. And I must not have been going home because otherwise I wouldn't have been flying to Atlanta. So I was sitting in business class uh, on a 767-300 on the the starboard side, right 
on top of over the cargo door. And I got to see the ground agents load a fully decked out, racing equipped Porsche, no. like GT3. <laughs> okay. With this huge spoiler. Right. <laughs> Lifted into the cargo of the 767. I thought that was amazing. I still have pictures of that. Yeah, and I can hear the announcement. Let the passenger who brought the Porsche on board please come to baggage claim to collect it. You'd have half the airline there. Yeah. But yeah. On, on that note, Mark, I want to thank you so much for joining me on Thinking Through Autonomy. It has been an absolute treat, and I'd really love to have you back again. Love to be back. Ken, it was a pleasure, and thank you for having me. This was, this was absolutely fun. And, uh, you know, happy to come back whenever you holler. Thank you. 